Welcome back to Humans of Purpose. I'm your host, Mike Davis, and each week I bring you conversations with local purpose-driven leaders. Leaders creating social impact through their work and inspiring positive social change across a wide variety of sectors. Sit back, tune in, and enjoy the next 40 minutes guaranteed to inspire you with our signature blend of wisdom, experience, and banter. Learn more at humansofpurpose.com. What I will tell people is, in the beginning, there, you know, relatively no one will be listening. But that isn't to say no one will be listening. You might have one or 200 people. And in my world, as a professor and lecturer, if I can get just 10 people to show up to one of my lectures, you know, an optional lecture at my university, that's a huge success. Hmm. So the fact that you have one or 200 people, which is, uh, you know, an internet terms just basically zero, uh, you know, that's a, that's a lot of people that you could be touching their, um, their lives. Great to be back with you here as always. Just want to start out by expressing my gratitude for our podcast supporters and our promotional package clients who have really helped us fast track the move to sustainability. If you too want to support the podcast, you can become a Supercast member and enjoy some great perks each week or take up one of the few remaining promotional spots on the podcast for the year and reach our growing global audience. Our promotional packages enable us to amplify support for all the amazing purpose-driven work happening out there that is having a positive social impact, and in doing so, it means we can break even financially and ensure our sustainability. More on this in the show notes. As always, we're proud to be sponsored by the great folk at Neon Treehouse. You can learn more about them in our show notes. And Creole are still the official drink of humans of purpose, and their delicious healthy sodas are great for those wanting an alternative to add those sugary sodas and uh, it is a very healthy, fresh and uh, refreshing alternative indeed. More on that in the show notes also. This week, I'm absolutely thrilled to welcome Dr. Kirk Honda to the podcast. Kirk is a psychotherapist based in Seattle, Washington, USA. He's a person of color and an advocate of social justice. My wife and I discovered Kirk via his Psychology in Seattle podcast, which I highly recommend you check out either via your podcast player or on YouTube. Kirk has an amazingly genuine and deep persona, an analytical skill, and produces content that helps us to better understand mental health issues, as well as the psychology that plays out in popular culture today. Kirk has an absolute mountain of subscribers across his YouTube channel, more than 300,000, and even more through his podcast and Patreon subscriber bases. Interesting topics he has dissected recently include the psychology of Elizabeth Holmes of Theranos, the psychology of Anna Delvey, you might have seen the great Netflix series, and his roaming daily coverage of the televised Johnny Depp versus Amanda Heard trial. More recently, Kirk has built a cult following because of his fantastic analysis of the interpersonal and psychological dynamics playing out in reality TV shows such as Love is Blind, 90 Day Fiance, and Married at First Sight. Beware. If you don't enjoy occasional reality TV before this introduction to Kirk, you may well be that person after you hear this interview and sample his absorbing content. Hope you enjoy this conversation with Kirk as much as I did. Absolutely thrilled to be joined by Dr. Kirk Honda. Welcome to the podcast, Kirk. Thanks for having me. Well, we've managed to make this work across international borders, various time zones, and, and we're making it all happen on the Zoom. Um, I am obsessed with your show. I think your YouTube channel is incredible. Um, you're obviously a lot more than that. You've got a private practice. You do some fantastic work professionally. But my wife really got me into your show. And um, as we were sort of saying before the podcast started, you are part of the reason why I find such fascination with uh, reality TV and observing the human condition. So double-edged sword i want to say thank you but also why did you do this to me (laughs) (laughs) yeah uh well you can blame my viewers because they were the ones that encouraged me to do it uh, on youtube so i guess you and i can both blame the fans for getting us both into reality tv but it's so interesting there's so much to talk about with it so yeah, and uh, we'll get to that. But I think maybe a good place to start sort of what we regularly do on Humans of Purpose is just to talk a little bit about how you decide. Did you always know you wanted to do psychology and psychotherapy? And maybe if you could just talk a bit about the difference between the two for our listeners. Difference between psychology and what? And psychotherapy. Psychotherapy. Well, um, briefly about that. So these are words that get thrown around not only in society, but also in our field without precise definitions, but 
um, psych- one could consider psychology to be a broader topic and psychotherapy as an application, particular application of psychology in the effort of uh, helping people with uh, talk therapy. It, you know, psychotherapy is uh, often synonymous with talk therapy, not always. So uh, also there are other definitions of psychology that it's um, relegated, at least in the States, to psychologists. But yeah, that's what I'll say. But in terms of my career path and given the scope of your podcast, it might help. And I'll try to be as quick as possible possible, so I don't bore people. But I think it is, I don't know, kind of interesting, uh, at least to me, that when I was in high school, I, I excelled in math and science and chemistry and physics. And so it was natural that I would, you know, go to college and try to find a career in that. And my, a lot of people in my family worked at Boeing in, in Seattle. It's the, at least um, used to be the headquarters. I don't know if it is anymore, but there's still a, a lot of Boeing employees in the area. And my, my dad had worked at Boeing and uh, for like 45 plus years. And so he was really interested in me becoming an engineer at Boeing. And so <clears throat> my skills were in that area. I went to uh, university and studied engineering in the beginning and very quickly realized that it, the career wasn't for me because it, it just sounds so boring because it was just, you know, sitting in front of a draft table. And although the, the, the topic interested me and I, I felt competent in it, much more competent than other topics like writing or history or their humanities, I thought, I'm just not into that. So I abruptly changed midstream to business because I didn't know what else to do. Uh, I, and I, and my sister, my oldest sister got a business degree from the same school of, of business, Foster school of business at university of Washington. And so I just, I thought, well, my sister did it. So I'll just do what she did. And I figured, well, you know, I have a greater chance of this degree working out because a lot of things involve business skills, right. <laughs> you know, cause there's a lot of jobs that happen at businesses. And so I fell into that and had, you know, I'm 19 years old, have no idea what I'm doing. Then I started to get interested in, in uh, marketing, actually, because uh, you could argue marketing is kind of like the psychology of business. And then I specialize in that. I graduate and I cannot find a job. <laughs> I'm just like, no one wants to hire me. I, I didn't know you're supposed to get an internship and you're supposed to network. I basically, because this is before the internet, I basically just opened up the newspaper looking for a job and and would send resumes and and was getting no offers. And then I ended up working at the at the Foot Locker. It's a it's a shoe store. Oh, we know Foot Locker. Oh, okay. So uh, <laughs> I worked at a at a Foot Locker downtown Seattle. So I have a a bachelor's in business from one of the best business uh, schools in the nation, and I'm working for <laughs> like two fifty an hour, uh, six days a week on commission only. And I have a boss that is just like a complete a-hole and I'm like, boy, I've really hit a, a, an all-time low at this point. Oh, and then fast forward a little bit longer later. And I've even hit a lower low when I become a dishwasher at a pizza restaurant so uh, that with a bachelor's degree, I'm just like, what's wrong with me? Well, then uh, things took a turn. And I ended up getting a job as a market researcher at a hospital and then eventually at a, at a firm, a market researching firm. And that was really fun. I, I had an office and a computer and I wore a suit to work and I was in charge of things and I'm 23 years old and I'm feeling like I'm hot crap. And it's, I'm like, okay, you know, I kind of see my life uh, head out before me. Uh, I'm still living like a college student and uh, I now have a little bit of extra money. And so I'm actually buying all this like musical equipment and stuff. I just felt like a, uh, like Mr. Moneybags, <laughs> even though I think I was earning like $12 an hour or something, but comparatively uh, it was a lot of money. And uh, so I am in traffic on a highway in, in Seattle, Seattle area and bumper to bumper. I'm just sitting there driving home from work and I am daydreaming about the rest of my life. And I, I see it all kind of stretched out before me. I see my twenties working up to associate. I see, you know, my thirties, maybe breaking off into having my own market researching firm, my fifties, you know, retirement, having a yacht or whatever it is that 
rich people in business <laughs> do. And I kind of liked it. You know, it seemed it seemed like a good life. I I I liked the work. It was dynamic. You know, market research involves a lot of product and working with various different clients and helping them to know their customers better. And and it it felt you know it felt interesting and and dynamic and and but it just didn't seem very fulfilling to me. And I'm just sitting there in traffic and I'm just like, well, huh, you know, on my deathbed, is that what I want to look back on a life that I'm, I'm seeing now at the age of 24, just stretched out before me. And I, I said, yeah, I don't, that's not really what I want to see. So I started to daydream about other kinds of jobs. You know, this is perhaps the very first time in my life when I just thought about what kind of career should I have, you know, at the age of 24, I'd, I, I had kind of fallen into things because of desperation and lack of having any idea what I want to do. But this is the first time when I really stopped to think like, well, what do I want to do for the rest of my life? You know, a third of our life is spent at work and what do I want to do with my life? And I thought, well, I've always wanted to be a, a music teacher that popped into my head. But then I thought, well, I don't want to have to wrangle kids because I, I don't want to be a I don't want to be a disciplinarian. <laughs> and by the way, when I played trumpet as a kid, we had a teacher that we tortured with our rambunctiousness. <laughs> and I think that was in my head. <laughs> and so I thought, nah, music teacher, not for me. And then uh, I uh, thought therapist just popped into my head. And I started, huh, therapist. I've never thought about it because that's not my identity. No one I know was thinking about becoming a therapist or even in psychology. And I started to, you know, try it on. And at first I'm like, well, I mean, come on, a therapist, that's ridiculous. But the more I thought about it, I was like, oh my God, this, this fits with so many parts of my personality. I love to talk. I love to listen. I love to explore. I love meaning. I like to help people. I like one-on-one conversations. I've always been obsessed with, you know, like in high school, uh, when I would sneak out at night, not to go drink with my buddies, but to um, sit down with my best friends and just talk. We would just sit there sober until six in the morning, just talking about the existence of life. And uh, I was like, Oh, is that? And I, I also kind of like detective work, you know, at the time I, I thought, well, maybe psychology is kind of like a, a detective case where you're trying to figure things out. I liked the fact that I, I perceived and I was accurate that once in private practice, I'd be able to dictate my own schedule. Cause that was another part of it was this nine to five. I'm not a morning person and I was really driven. And I, it was actually eight to five and I had to, you know, get up at like six or something to get to, you know, battle traffic at the work. And I, uh, so a, a large part of this motivation was like, I just, I can't do this, this traffic and, and this hour, these hours anymore. I need a, I need a job and therapists probably are able to dictate their hours, which is true. And I, you know, within a week I was looking into programs and within a few months, six months or so I was in a program and I never looked back. It's always been a, a love of mine, this career. And I'm just so happy that I was stuck in traffic that one day. I love that story. And I like how we just took a full journey from Foot Locker and uh, Pizza Dishwasher all the way through to accomplished therapist and, uh, you know, professional uh, broadcaster. That's a, that's a really uh, exciting journey you've mapped. But um, I particularly like how, um, you know, what strikes me about the way you tell the story is it seems like you have this fascination with the human condition and from, the, from quite the outset. So marketing, trying to understand consumer behavior, um, enjoying the long discussions and conversations, trying to figure out where other people are coming from. And you, you also bring, I think, a real empathy to what you do. And I think it's just apparent from watching your videos and not having been in session with you, but you seem like a person who's quite curious, empathetic, and really gets sparked or energized by trying to work out what's going on in someone else's head and the relationship dynamics. Would that be a good assessment? Yeah, absolutely. And I don't know where that comes from. Some people would say it's because I'm a middle child. Some people would say it's because, I mean, maybe I would say it's because when I was born into my family, my older brother and sister were like six and seven years older than me. 
And so, and I remember feeling this way, like there was my mom and dad, and there was my older brother and sister who were relating to each other. And then I was like off in the corner, not really able to relate. And I observed a lot (laughs) and people would uh, comment. And it's kind of a funny story in my family lore that when I was, you know, three years old, I had this look on my face where it looked like I was dissecting people's minds or something, (laughs) which uh, just sounds bizarre. But uh, so I think that might've been why it's like, well, no one's playing with me. So I guess I'll just watch them and try and figure them out. So through your work, I mean, I have a bit of a vague theory and it could be completely wrong that, that perhaps people who work in your space um, through their work and through your work, do you feel that you start to understand and see things in other people and other dynamics and situations that you can then be self-reflective and you kind of get to know yourself better? Is that part of it? Oh yeah. hundred percent. So um, a lot of my growth and self-awareness has been created not only that way, but also as I teach or as I podcast, you know, I, a lot of therapy for myself has been done outside of a therapy office and, you know, or when I'm being a therapist and a, a prime example of this is that frequently happens, honestly, is I'll be talking with a couple about intimacy and communication and giving each other the benefit of the doubt and um, being vulnerable. And the session will end and I work from home. So, um, and my wife does as well. And so I'll just, my you know, my session will be over and I'll just go to my wife and just like sort of do what I was telling my other couple to do, you know? Yeah, that's amazing. And you know, um, I mean, I think given that you've got a practice, um, a professional practice, you are seeing clients, um, was it a difficult choice for you to make to sort of go public in what you do and start to talk more about therapy and sort of be more of a public face and even do some of what you do professionally um, for shows and dynamics and people uh, from what you would do sort of in session? In the beginning, no one was watching my channel or listening to my podcast. So that wasn't much of a risk, but, <laughs> and, and I'm, and by beginning, I, I, that's like seven years where uh, from 2008 to 2005, where no one was, or 2015, where no one's paying attention. Um, but I am a stickler for ethics and professionalism. And so from the beginning, I, I thought a lot about um, what if my client's past, future, or present heard this? And would that harm the treatment, which is the primary ethical consideration? And I would, you know, be careful about what I said. I would edit things out if I thought a client would be harmed by a statement like that. So I've always thought about that. As the years have gone by, I've disclosed more about myself in the podcast because I'm, I'm creating more and more content. But Again, I, I, I still stand by uh, the disclosures as non-harmful. I, I occasionally will talk to clients as, you know, if it would be harmful to them or if it would change their idea of me in a negative way. And um, I've never heard an indication. I'm sure it affects things. You know, I do have clients that do listen to the podcast and uh, I'm sure it affects things. But sometimes I even am hoping that my clients will listen because there are episodes where I feel like I'm directly speaking to their issue. So um, yeah, it, it, it's an important area. And I spent not only 14 years mulling that over with every episode that I published, but I also wrote a white paper dedicated to this topic because it's, it's kind of a new area of ethics this idea of a therapist who sees clients who is creating, you know, the sort of content uh, on YouTube and podcasting and Instagram. Uh, This is a a new uh, area that we haven't really had to consider in our field. And of course people have thought about it, but it's, there's a lot of debate. And so I spent a lot of time uh, because I'm, I'm in the thick of it, reviewing the ethical codes, reviewing the common ethical considerations and 
drawing up some best practices around what we should be doing because there are a lot more people like me and there undoubtedly over the next hundred years, even more of us, well, hundred years, who knows what hundred years, but over the next 20 years, there'll be even more clinicians who are doing this kind of work. And um, because the reason why I say this is because there are some people in my field who are old and stodgy. I mean, not old, but sort of old thinking who will say that just being on YouTube is unethical for a therapist. (laughs) And it's just a gross misunderstanding of the ethical codes and considerations and principles. And so I felt compelled to um, get out ahead of those accusations by writing that paper. Yeah, I think it's fantastic. And I think giving visibility to what you do can encourage so many more people to get therapeutic help. And I mean, my personal belief is that um, if you go to gym or do exercise uh, on a semi-regular basis uh, and you work your body, you should also work your mind and you know take charge of that by seeing somebody regularly. I see somebody monthly and it's made a huge difference to how I uh, manage stress, how I live day to day and how I um, think about navigating complex problems as well. So definitely it's a a great awareness spreading thing that you're doing. Um, So what made you think of going, well, actually, before we get to that, you said that it took about five or seven years to actually take off what you were doing. So how do you, I mean, for me, my podcast is still in its kind of infancy, even though it's been five years. So I think a lot of people don't understand the amount of work that goes into doing something for the love of doing something without any reward for a long time. Do you put it down to stubborn persistence that you believe something will eventually work or what was it for you that kept you going? Well, why do you go on? Why do you do it? Um, I think for me, I strongly believe in the value of the offering. Uh, I, I believe that it can help people. I believe that, um, you know, if it gets listened to and discovered, people will learn about how they can consider their life in a different way or their pathway or where they might be moving that can um, help enliven a purpose, personal or professional, and help them to really self-actualize. Mm-hmm. So that, that's sort of why I do it. And I think um, that whenever I think about pulling out of doing it, I keep thinking, well, there is more great stories of people to tell that can help a lot of other people learn and grow. So that yeah. was for me. Yeah. Well, good. Yeah. You have a, a purpose, a, a bigger a meaning in it. You're trying to be altruistic to others. I'm sure others uh, are listening and are benefiting in this way. So, you know, the, the way I will tell, I was someone actually was consulting with me yesterday about their podcast that they're starting. And uh, what I will tell people is in the beginning there, you know, relatively no one will be listening, but that isn't to say no one will be listening. You might have one or 200 people. And in my world as a professor and lecturer, if I can get just 10 people to show up to one of my lectures, you know, an optional lecture at my university, that's a huge success. Hmm. So the fact that you have one or 200 people, which is, uh, you know, an internet terms just cons- basically zero, uh, you know, that's a, that's a lot of people that you could be touching their um, their lives. And I think that's incredibly important. So, um, but yeah, for, for me, I was always, it's really kind of hard to answer briefly, but in, in brief, I, for whatever reason, when I started the podcast, I became obsessed with it. And I, I listened to podcasts and I always have. And and people would ask, and I think you were kind of referring to this, they would say like, why are you doing it? <laughs> you know? uh, and I would say like, well, I, I don't know. I just, I just love to do it. Um, there were a lot of benefits from it. One was I was learning things Two, It was a creative outlet. Uh, three, I always kind of felt like it was, it would be a catalog or an archive of my work, you know, for therapists, there's so there are so many amazing moments in therapy that happen, you know, as a client in therapy, you might be able to attest to this, like really just mind blowing moments in, that will happen oh, yeah. behind, clo- behind closed doors in therapy, but no one ever sees it for good reason. And, and they shouldn't, but uh, therapy uh, to the outside world is, can be very mysterious. And I, I just wanted some kind of record of like, what therapy is actually like and what a, what a therapist might say. And uh, another thing is 
I have always been uh, questioning of the status quo. And one of the status quo elements of psychology is that we still prioritize publishing in journals. So if you are the pinnacle of your professorship is if you have uh, an article frequently published in a, in a, you know, peer reviewed journal and, uh, and that's great. And I applaud that we need that. It's very important, but very few people read those things. In fact, sometimes uh, no one will read it. In fact, um, along these lines, um, a, a friend of mine at the university, he makes jokes about how his, his dissertation, which is essentially like a submission to a journal, uh, when, uh, it's like, it's back in mid, the Midwest somewhere. And he puts $20 whenever he goes back to his university, he'll find his dissertation in the library and put 20, a $20 bill in it. And every few years when he goes back, he'll, he'll, he'll take his dissertation off and see if the money is still there. And it always is, which proves that no one is ever reading his dissertation. And the, the amount of work, Mike, that goes in to a dissertation is so much. And the, and the value of the work is so large, you know, every, every dissertation is, is created with love and blood and sweat and tears and hard work. And there are some amazing things and yet no one will ever see it because we're still in the 1800s, you know, in our Oxford robes, publishing things for ourselves to read, not realizing or not recognizing the fact that there's a freaking internet that you can publish things on. And, and if you're going to get people to pay attention on the internet, you got to make it appealing. You got to make mm -hmm. it interesting. Mm -hmm. And so that was another reason why I started the podcast. Cause I wanted to actually, you know, spread the good word, if you will. Yeah. Um, another, sorry, one more aspect in my mm -hmm. very long, brief answer is I always believed, you know, <laughs> and so uh, I say this for you and, and other people that might be, you know, in these kinds of, uh, phases of, of a creative project, I always believed that it would uh, be bigger, you know, when it was very, very small and I just had 100 people paying attention and like a good number of them were my friends and family. I, I just always thought, I think I can make something that would be helpful to people. I think I can make something that would be meaningful to people. And I kept honing it and kept pushing and sort of hustling on how to get the word out and, you know, just experimenting with all these different marketing things. And 99.9% um, .9 of the things did not work, but occasionally something does work and then it would, then it would take off. And I, I was like, yes, I always knew it, that it would, that it would, <laughs> it would you know, that it was, I always knew it was good, you know, and, and, and no one was paying attention and, you know, I hear other people who are obviously way more successful than me that will have a similar thought that, you know, like, uh, uh, Steve jobs, for example, I, you know, I, I, I don't know, but I imagine he probably said something and I, I don't want to compare myself to Steve jobs, but I feel like success sometimes depends on a delusional belief that what you have is good even though there's no evidence from the outside that it is. <laughs> yeah, totally. And I think you need, it's, it's almost, I mean, I'm tempted here to go down Elizabeth Holmes territory, but I'll, I'll kind of resist right. for now. But um, I think it's, it's a fascinating thing. Like what is the right amount of self-belief to have without results before you pull the pin or do you just continue on into the never? And I think sometimes it's just, I mean, when I was a young guy um, and I was terrible at sports, I remember just, flogging myself um, and practicing and practicing and practicing to get better at sports. And one of the weird things was I never got great, but I knew that if I just practiced enough and kept repeating and getting that 1% improvement every day or week, that incrementalism, um, I'd eventually not be terrible. Um, and I think that's the approach that I took with podcasting where I thought, look, I think my idea is good. I'm going to back it in. And I'll give it some time. And what really kept me going was the curiosity. And um, for me to really cite that curiosity, you know, like it's, it's, it's kind of in me. And I realized that I get a huge amount of energy and optimism and inspiration from talking to people um, about things that I may or may not know much about their life, what they do, um, and just 
integrating those lessons, um, discovering new things, and then being able to share that on a platform, which has thankfully grown from, you know, um, probably that handful of people as you described to um, now a good number. Um, we're not cracking Kirk Honda numbers on the YouTube channel, which are just phenomenal. But how does that feel for you now to sort of see what you do and, and kind of, you know, no, no one, maybe a few people believed in it, maybe yourself at the beginning, but now you've got you put up a video and, you know, your community is just rampant. Um, you got thousands and thousands of people watching, full of comments, um, lots of sort of user uh, or viewer feedback. What's that feel like? Oh, so many feelings. Um, one is it was so slow, Mike, from, you know, 2008 to 2022 that, yeah, 2022, that, every step along the way was a celebration, you know, and, but not a huge one, right. There were, there were tiny little leaps, so to speak, but it's, it's been this really steady growth every week, just grinding and grinding and getting a bigger audience. And so on, on one level, uh, it's amazing. And on another level, it was so slow. Like I, I think it was Bradley Cooper. I was listening to an interviewer. He struggled as a as an actor for a long, long time, and then by the time he actually and would do commercials and real bit parts in in movies and TV. And I could be getting this wrong, but uh, this is my memory. And then when he started to make it big, it was slow, it was incremental, and it. He says it helped him to appreciate it and to savor it and to not screw it up because. It, he knew what it was like before <laughs> and he uh, you know, if you have sudden fame, it can feel like it's inevitable and you, you don't treasure it. You don't, you don't protect it. You don't, you're not careful with it. And so I'm, I'm very careful with it and I'm very, I treasure it because I, 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 it wasn't that long ago. I remember what it was like when, when hardly anyone was paying attention so uh, there's that, but it also can be overwhelming. And someone, someone asked me the other day, uh, a fan was asking uh, if I wanted things to be bigger and, and what I would do to, to achieve that. And I had coincidentally recently thought about that and, and concluded I did not want it to get bigger because I love where it's at right now. Um, it's, it's pretty big anyway, but there are obviously podcasts and YouTube channels that are, that are way bigger than me, but I don't want the scrutiny one. Um, the internet can be a cruel place and, uh, I've experienced a little bit of that. And I feel like if I was bigger, I'd get more of that. Also, I don't want to have it feel like uh, it's such a big crowd of fans that I, I can't really relate to any one of them. You know, I, I, my, my fan base is small enough, at least the, the sort of core group such that I can know their names and I can email with them and I can DM with them and, uh, re, you know, see them at a live event, and remember them. Whereas if it got bigger, it, I think it would lose that. And a big part of the meaning for me is that feeling of it's, it's not just this faceless mass of people. It, it's, um, I can, I can, people email in and I'll feel like I'm, I'm having an interaction. You know, I think it harkens back to my experience or not harkens, but just reminds, or I'm trying to create like a classroom as a professor. And that's what my classes are like. I, they're not big. It's just like, you know, 10, 15 students. And and I, by the end of the term, I, I feel like I really get to know them. And uh, I like that experience it. Uh, Cause if I'm just sort of lecturing to the void, it feels kind of meaningless. I, I want some contact with, with them and I want them to influence me. I, I don't want to just be, you know, speaking from the mountaintop. I want to be in the crowd and listening and being influenced. And so uh, I, I don't want it to be bigger. And what's it like for you day to day? You live in Seattle? Yes. So how is your life now since it's got big? Do you kind of walk around and get recognized on the street? How often would you be recognized um, publicly by when you're not expecting it? Yeah. Well, uh, it happens occasionally. It's not very frequent. Um, one time someone was shy and 
uh, I was parking outside the university. And when I got back to my car, they left a really long, really lovely note on, it was in my, um, you know, windshield wipers. And I just thought, I felt like a secret admirer was like watching me all the time. <laughs> um, so that happened. Another time it's fascinating. I was at a bar actually, and talking with some friends and someone walked by and then they came back and they said, are you Dr. Kirkana? I said, yes. And they said, I didn't know what you look like, but I could tell by your voice because I listened to your podcast. And I was like, really? Like without knowing what I look like by me, just having a conversation with my, with my friends, you, you could detect that it was. Me. Oh yeah. Kirk, that's, that doesn't surprise me at all. I mean, I'm quite an oral person, so I get a lot of, um, I like audio books. I like podcasts. I like the human voice. Um, I, I get that a lot when I ring people um, and they are podcast listeners, they will say, are you Mike Davis? And I will say, yes, it's me. And they'll do the whole freak out thing. It's weird because I was just listening to your podcast, but I think voices are an incredible thing. And um, I think if I was that person in that bar and walked past you, I would recognize you from your face, but also hearing your voice, I would be, Louise, my wife would be definitely recognizing that. And especially if you were making like a bit of discussion about reality TV, like 90 day fiance or something, she would be all over that. Yeah. Yeah. So there was that, but a lot of my uh, fame actually uh, occurred during the pandemic. Um, and haven't uh, throughout this time, uh, you know, it hasn't been put to the test how well I'll be recognized on the street. Although I will say that I have been out and about and um, haven't been recognized. Although someone lives in my neighborhood, actually a fan, like doesn't a fan lives pretty close by <laughs> when I'm walking the dogs, <laughs> she'll, she'll say hi. And she's always really nice. She doesn't like, um, I th- I feel like she's trying not to invade my space, but um, I don't really feel like that would happen. But anyway, um, uh, but I'll tell you, Mike, I, so I went to Disneyland with Umberto a couple of weeks ago and we were there for four days and, you know, there's millions of people there. It's, it's, a, it's packed. And I thought, well, if I'm going to get recognized, it, it, it'll probably happen here. Right. And I never got recognized. And at the end of it, um, I have to say, <laughs> I was talking with my wife about this. On one hand, I was happy because I don't know, I just, I want to be able to be myself. I, 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 I want to. I don't want to have to worry, like, am I making a fool out of myself right now? Um, so, cause I, I like that anonymity a lot. Um, but on the other hand, I was slightly disappointed that no one. Recognized me. <laughs> That's hilarious. <laughs> uh, and uh, <clears throat> you know, cause I'm not that uh, it hasn't happened that often that it um, I'm annoyed by it when, when, cause I'm sure a certain level of celebrity it just gets annoying that people come up to you. Like I'm definitely not at that stage. So, uh, but yeah, I don't, I don't think it happens very often, but sometimes I worry that people aren't coming up to me cause they don't want to bother me or something. And um, I don't know. I just like to be anonymous. Like I, cause I, I'm kind of a, I don't know. I'm, especially if I'm with my friends, I'm probably doing something embarrassing or saying something stupid. And, and I, it, it would just mortify me if, if I, said something that was embarrassing and a podcast fan realized that the persona online is not the real me. (laughs) You're a fraud. (laughs) How did you decide that you wanted to start engaging with reality TV? What was sort of the moment where you thought, wow, this would be really interesting to analyze and, um, and, uh, and deconstruct for an audience. Yeah. Well, in brief, I, didn't really watch reality TV. It just wasn't uh, for me. One, I just don't watch a lot of TV. Um, And two, I I just never really found it interesting. And um, it's hard to get into. I think now, now that I watch it, it, there's a barrier of entry that I feel like once you cross the line and maybe you can attest to this, Mike, uh, you kind of know the language of reality TV and it, 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 it's more familiar and it, it makes it more palatable. Have you mm. found that to be true? Yeah, I think to some extent. I mean, some shows just pull you right in because conceptually they're fascinating. I mean, I, I think there are shows like I will say I heard about 90 Day Fiance from a podcast and you can't really get it in Australia very easily, but I started to download it and I just thought this is a fascinating social experiment. 
um, is this person really in love with this person or do they just want to come to America? And I thought that was just a really fascinating thing to, to film that and kind of like also um, maybe a little bit voyeuristic and bordering on morally wrong to put people in that situation. But um, as an observer, just incredible television. And then um, I don't think there were too many other shows that I liked. There was Love After Lockup, which I thought was fascinating mm-hmm. um, because, you know, who is looking to um, engage in relationships with people in prison? It sort of seems like a strange um, choice and vice versa. And then um, The Ultimatum, which we just watched recently, I thought was um, incredibly close to the line of what would be morally okay uh, and what wouldn't be. And I think that pushing that line, it's always getting pushed closer to this place of, you know, are we putting people uh, in a really unethical social experiment? Um, So there's a voyeurism there, but I think... um, yeah, I think for me it's just about trying to understand um, dynamics and power. I think power relations play a big part in all of this. And Yeah, I mean, what do you sort of take from these shows that is um, kind of uh, takes your interest and elevates it enough to um, do full commentary on episodes? Uh, well, that's a good question. I It's in conversation with the fans, with the viewers, because I, I wouldn't be doing it if, if it weren't for them, in all honesty. So they asked um, you to do it? Was that sort of how it began? Yeah, well, so the pandemic started and the other Netflix, uh, you know, Netflix came out with their very first, I think, or at least first heavily promoted reality TV show called Love is Blind. Oh, yeah, yeah. Uh, almost exactly two years ago, actually. And me and my wife were just stuck at home uh, no socializing, no going to restaurants. And so we had all this time on our hands and it just felt like, well, maybe we could get into a television show and, and it was kind of trending this love is blind thing. So I started watching it and I, I like I said, rarely had I ever seen any reality TV. And instantly I, as I was watching in the living room, I thought there is so much I could be saying about this in a podcast, there's, it's, it's just a perfect, uh, I don't know, grist for the mill. And I, uh, at some point, maybe later that night, you know, dusted off my webcam because I, I don't really do that kind of thing. And it was this really bad old Logitech thing and, and just sort of propped it up on something and, uh, figured out how to do a reaction video. And then, posted it thinking, you know, maybe a few of the fans will like this, but you know, like I said earlier, uh, you know, I experimented with so many different things to try to um, push the thing forward. And uh, this was just another one of those things. And there was no reason to believe that anyone would care, but it took off and it was overwhelmed. This was one of the few times where there was a very sudden surge in popularity you know, fast forward just a few weeks and the, the cast members, you know, were DMing me and saying, you know, thank you for what you said, or so-and-so hates you. <laughs> he watches it now <laughs> and he hates you or whatever. And uh, so then they, you know, with this new group of fans on YouTube, they were demanding <laughs> that I watch 90 Day Fiance. And I'd never heard of it before. And for some people, that's like absurd that I'd never even heard of it, but I hadn't. And so I started watching it and uh, fell in love with the show, I guess, similar to how uh, you described it and realized, because, you know, as a professor, I've been trying to teach my students how to do therapy. And one of the things that will help to teach students how to do therapy is to have real life examples of human beings that we can talk about, right? And so there are instructional DVDs and videos uh, of therapy with real human beings or actors. And it, they're they're really poorly produced. They're boring. They're often from like the 70s or 80s where everyone's hair is weird and it puts all the students off. And when I'm watching these reality TV shows, it's like, those are real people. Now, occasionally it's, it's staged and whatnot, but there's a lot of moments where it, at least to me, looks extremely real and represents exactly what happens with my clients. And it gives me a chance to 
actually apply all the things that I teach about with these actual human beings. And then, you know, as you were talking about earlier, uh, this sort of side effect happened, which is, um, and I, maybe I intended this, I don't know, people watch it and then they apply it to their own lives, you know, cause, uh, all of us had have some couple on that show that were struggling with, you know, part of their issues. And when I talk about these things, you know, people say, oh, you know, actually that's kind of like me. You're kind of, you're, you're talking about him, but it's actually, you're also kind of talking about me and it gives people a chance to, you know, contemplate things and, and to have compassion for themselves. And again, you know, maybe seek therapy and uh, yeah, what a, what a big deal, you know, <laughs> what a, a wonderful thing that is. And it um, my, when I wake up in the morning, that's what gets me out of bed is <laughs> like, okay, let's, you know, create content to reach one more person so that they can live a happier life of vulnerability and compassion and attachment security. It, it, you know, really motivates me. And I'm just wondering about sort of the insights that you gain from both um, watching and commentating on these shows and then your private practice. Is it a bi-directional kind of relationship? Like does one help you become more proficient in the other or um, does your private practice help you be better at making these videos and commentary? Absolutely. It is a bi-directional um, and maybe tri-directional with being a professor mm. that uh, a lot of what I've learned as a clinician in terms of conceptual learning and literature review is from the podcast. Because as a therapist, you're just grinding session by session by session. You don't have a lot of time to research concepts and learn new things. I mean, there is continuing education, but it's few and far between. As a professor, you have a little bit more time to learn, but still you're teaching classes typically, you know, the same classes over and over and over again. You learn that material well, but you don't have a lot of time to go outside that material. But podcasting, every episode of the audio podcast anyway, is about something new. I mean, not always something new, but frequently about something new. And so I have this treasure trove of topics that I personally just want to learn myself. And through that learning, then I can create an episode. And so, uh, and of course that knowledge absolutely helps me as a professor and helps me as a therapist. The other direction is that as a therapist, it puts me in direct contact, you know, where the rubber meets the road with the action of change in individuals and the struggles and the, the, uh, issues that people face. And so when I am talking about things in my podcast or my reaction videos, I have that fresh in mind to, uh, you know, draw from and can inform the way that I, I phrase things, you know, like instead of, you know, I could imagine, I don't know, but, but if I didn't have a practice, I might be kind of flippant about things like, you know, come on, get over it. I don't, I mean, I probably wouldn't be like that, but maybe in that direction. <laughs> Whereas when I actually work with real human beings, you, you realize that it takes a long time to change it. it it's hard and uh, people are struggling, you know, and I guess additionally, I have the luxury with my clients to really dive into their subjective experience in which there's a, often a lot of vulnerability and pain and anxiety and fear and attachment worries and, and, you know, just a lot of hurt. And when I'm watching these reality TV shows, I have that resource, a felt sense of what goes on inside of people to help me speculate as to what is happening with the characters on the show, which of course they almost never express in a vulnerable way, but is, likely going on underneath things i mean there's a lot going on with that sort of triangle that you described before the professorship the practice and then the broadcasting how do you make it work for you on a day-to-day basis um, in terms of dividing your time and your family as well and how do you sort of maintain um, your own well-being and sanity given you've got so many things happening on the go well it's a good question i in my 14 years of podcasting have always been a therapist and a professor. So I've always had to balance it in various different ways. And of course, 
a primary consideration is, am I able to pay my bills? You know, so that's another aspect of this that I have to, um, you know, gauge everything by, but, um, currently the configuration is I'm actually not teaching right now. Uh, I'm, uh, I, I scaled way back at the university and am very much part-time and I decided to take this term off because I, I just wanted to, I guess, and plan on teaching later, but probably, you know, just one class every here, every now and then. So that's put aside. <laughs> and then my practice is very small. I haven't accepted, accepted a new client in years. And, uh, you know, some of my long-term clients actually just naturally terminated, just naturally sort of graduated from therapy. And so I, I don't have that many clients. So the majority of what I do in terms of work is broadcasting. As you're as you're putting it, and I, I like that broad because it encompasses the whole kind of shit, yeah, right? <laughs> video, podcast, everything. Yeah, and, and so uh, if you watched my life, you know, my waking life, you wouldn't know I was a professor or a therapist. <laughs> you know, you just say, "Oh, he's just a broadcaster at this point," which is which is quite true. And so, in terms of keeping my sanity, um, I'm pretty good at drawing boundaries with things that I don't want to do. And, uh, but currently I'll, I'll level with you, Mike, and tell you that I feel like I'm running a little thin with my, uh, I don't know, soul with the broadcasting element, because, Mm. you know, the podcast is a, takes up a lot of time and the YouTube channel takes up a lot of time and you put them to put both together. And I'm pretty much working a lot, let's just say. Mm. (laughs) And so, Mm. uh, I feel like it's not really sustainable. So something's got to, something's got to give at some point, but it, but it's like trying to choose between two of your children, you know, (laughs) just like, which one do I neglect? I I don't know. Uh, I don't want to do that. It's too dear to me and and it's fun. So I don't know. I don't know what I'm going to do. But that's yeah that's um i think that's interesting Gurkha. i mean i have a bit of a theory for me that certainly held true that um you can only ever do probably three or four things well at a time and it's sort of a juggle and if you try and exceed that sort of magic number of three or four things you're going to be terrible at everything and it'll take you a while to realize that um and so i'm i'm sort of pretty careful now to just try and concentrate on what are the few things that i do um, but what you didn't answer in your question that I am pretty curious about, because you've got with the therapy and the practice and, and the broadcasting as well, how do you um, replenish and regain energy and sort of vitality? Um, because I know that being a therapist can be pretty heavy. You're hearing a lot of difficult things and um, a lot of things come up. Are you an exerciser, meditator? Well, what is it for you that works? Uh, another good question that I, I probably don't have the healthiest of answer to, honestly. <laughs> uh, I know that maybe better therapists than me would have this really elaborate sort of <laughs> system of meditation, and, uh, you know, baths and, um, I don't know, hiking or whatnot, but I, um, I'm, you know, me and my wife were at this phase, the, the quarantine really turned us into homebodies. We, we really, it's just, we're you know, home a lot with our dogs. And so, you know, yeah, I'll exercise a little bit, but, but honestly being, I've reached a point in my career with, you know, my various different activities that it doesn't really drain me. It, it I don't feel, uh, de, you know, depleted a, after work. And, um, I think particularly the podcast, you know, sometimes I'll be a little mentally tired, like, Oh, you know, I, I just yammered for like seven hours. <laughs> like my brain is just not working, but I'm not, I'm not um, wiped out. I'm not unmotivated. I'm not like, uh, I remember, well, getting back to Foot Locker, Mike, when I would get off work, cause you're on your feet all day and I'm dealing with an a-hole boss and there's all these customers and I'm scrambling to sell because I'm, I'm completely on, on commission. And I would take the bus downtown and the bus home. And by the time I got home, I just wanted to go to sleep. And I remember thinking this job must suck because um, I've had other jobs where that was not the case. You know, I would go to work and I'd get home and I, I, I still had energy. You know, I, I was like, yeah, let's, let's, let's do some stuff and let's go out. And, and so my days 
are not like the footlocker job. <laughs> <laughs> So I, well, I guess the answer is I don't need to have a yeah, regimen. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, you feel pretty uh, replenished. I probably should. I probably should for my cortisol level and whatnot. And maybe you've, you could have covered this already, but, I mean, one thing that has always been important to me in driving my decision-making and sort of, you know, just how I behave as a human is the notion of purpose and both personal and sort of um, and career purpose. What does purpose mean for you in how you live your life and how you sort of conduct your various activities and decide how you're going to be as a person in the world? Yeah, that's a hard question to uh, answer, but I think about it often. And I was thinking about it when I was in traffic at the age of 24. Um, you know, what do I say? Well, whether or not it's like a, 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 a sort of a, how do I wear this? Whether or not I decided that this is my purpose or this is a purpose that was handed to me by the universe, like I'm fated for this purpose, I don't know. But I've always said my, my purpose when I decided to become a therapist was to try to make the world a better place. I might fail, but I want to try. And Every um, and then when I became a professor, in addition to be a therapist, I said, "Well, I want to help people to help others. You know, that will make the world a better place. I'm not directly making a world a better place, but I'm helping others to make the world a better place, and so that helps me with my purpose. And then being a therapist, being a pod, being a broadcaster, uh, additionally, you know, I'm always kind of driven by that. And uh, part of the and I was telling the um, perspective broadcaster yesterday about this, that you, you have to make a product. If, if you're going to have a podcast and you want people to listen to it, and if there's going to be a heavy subject matter, you have to have something in there that sweetens the pot, you know, the sugar that makes the medicine go down. And so you, you have to make it entertaining, or at least it's a, it's a good model to follow. And so there might be a lot of things in the podcast where it, it might be a little frivolous seeming, you know, I might be talking about movies and, you know, how am I making the world a better place by doing that. But I've always thought that if you make something entertaining and meaningful to people, then the heavy stuff will be easier to listen to, I guess. I, I don't know how to put it, but um, so how do I, you know, determine that? I think I developed that early in my life. Um, I grew up um, heavily Christian, well, not heavily Christian, but you know, my family went to church every Sunday and uh, we were involved in various different church activities. And in my church, you know, in the seventies, it was a lot of hippies and a lot of people talking about love and acceptance. You know, it was, it was kind of a radical idea in America in the seventies, um, you know, contrasting with the judgmental fifties kind of a thing. Mm -hmm. And I, as a very young child, remember absorbing that uh, that message of forgiveness, compassion, love, nonviolence, charity, um, serving others, believing in people, turning the other cheek. You know, it was, it was just a, an onslaught of that messaging um, throughout my life. And my parents uh, were adherents as well and would parent me and the other kids um, and my family kind of along those lines. So, I I think that's where it it started for me. It was basically given to me, and it it took until I was in my mid twenties to finally have the I don't know maturity to be able to focus on it. I guess so, and it feels right to me. You know, like I I feel completely congruent. Like I could. I've always said this throughout my career. I could die tomorrow and feel like. You know, like I was saying earlier, when I was stuck in traffic, I'm like, is this what I want to look back on? I can look back at 51. I can look back on my career and say that I absolutely tried, you know, and I gave it my best shot, you know, to make the world a better place. And I can die tomorrow confident that I, that I tried. And, and, but I wonder about other people because of course my purpose is kind of easy to manifest, you know, if you really feel it. Because of course, not everyone has that purpose. You know, what if your purpose is to 
I don't know, be an entrepreneur or something. You know, those, mm. I think those are harder to, I don't know, talk about because it feels like you're being greedy or selfish or something. And and so, um, I've, I, but I've talked with clients about this, and I think to those listening out there, I you know the perp the the idea is to find your purpose, whatever that is, but don't judge yourself if your purpose. Uh, doesn't have the sort of, I don't know, compassion and altruism in it. Like it's okay to have a purpose. Like I'm going to be, I'm going to be a worker and then I'm going to go fly fishing every day because that's my purpose. Like, there, you know, it's not a lot of altruism in that necessarily. And that's okay too. You know, cause sometimes I worry when I talk about my purpose, people will be like, well, I don't know. My purpose is I just want to I just want to open a dry cleaning business. Like what's wrong with me? And yeah. and I, I, and, and it's, you know, uh, I, I, you know, I feel like that's also glorious, you know, if, if, if that's what gets, if that's what gets you up in the morning and you love to dry clean clothes and hand them back to the customer, all nice and spiffy and that little, you know, hanger and the plastic thing. And, you know, it's always a good feeling when you get that clothes back from the dry cleaner, like, you know, that can be a tremendous amount of meaning in that, you know? Uh, so, uh, you know, that's what I'll say about that. <laughs> What's the no, meaning of I your like, life, Mike? What's the well, meaning of your life? I mean, I like what you said about that. I mean, I often thought to myself, you know, um, does altruism have to be a necessary element of purpose? Um, for me, it, it is. Uh, so I can't separate that. I mean, it, it's about working for organizations that are trying to do good and, you know, trying to um, create something that helps people through through podcasting and whatnot. So that's just what gets me out of bed. So I think you're right to bring it down to the core basic, that is what gets you out of bed and not to be too judgmental of that. But yeah, I certainly know a lot of people whose purpose uh, might be to make um, a lot of money and buy a house or just to um, be able to um, be a CEO and then have a comfortable life with their family. Um, it could be to travel frequently or, or something like that. And I don't really um, judge any of that, but I just sort of know that that's stuff wouldn't work for me and it doesn't resonate with me. So I think it's just a lot about um, feeling out what it is that makes you tick and makes you want to do things. And actually, um, Kirk, one of the things I'm playing with a bit more and more as part of what I need to make my life successful is the notion that, the things that I do um, should be fun. And if they're not fun, um, I have to seriously question why I'm doing them and that that actually extends to work as well. Like I work full time um, and, and that's not the podcast. And um, for me, you know, I only want to work in places where it's challenging. Um, I'm pushed to my limits, but also every day is fun for me because I get to work with people and solve complex problems. So that's become a key part of purpose for me is sort of that fun element. Mm. Yeah. Living in the moment, enjoying the roses as they come your way instead of just, well, I got to put in my day of work and I'll got I hope I can't wait till it's over. So to totally. And I think there's um something about um when you're having fun, you're more able to be present and in the moment and then the time passes a lot faster and you just yeah. have a better day overall. So yeah. um, I try and avoid working for places that are not enabling me to have some kind of fun. Uh, but it also makes me a lot better at my work when I can have that fun as part of it. So, well, I'll tell you, Mike, you have a very, I mean, I don't know, fun vibe, but you have a very easygoing, uh, relaxed, but, you know, present, um, comfortable vibe. So I, I could see how that would all fit together for you. I'm sure your coworkers think of you as a, a fun, cordial, interesting, you know, chill guy. <laughs> yeah, I, I hope so. I mean, I, I think, you know, I've got my shortcomings too in, in many departments, but but I think I do like to bring fun and energy to environments. And uh, I mean, like you, I think I love people and I'm very curious about people and what makes them tick. And that sort of will propel me forward. But look, I've, I think I've just realized that we might about hit the time limit on our little Zoom session. How can people um, connect with you and um, learn more about your work? Psychology in Seattle is my podcast and YouTube channel. So just Google that. 
Fantastic. And I just, I can't speak highly enough of how interesting Kirk's videos are. Even if you don't like reality TV, even if you just want to understand the psychology of Elizabeth Holmes or some of these other uh, really interesting characters out there. I mean, you do a, a fantastic job. It's so engaging. It's so insightful and it's just so different. I mean, I, what I like as a creator is I feel like you've brought something into the world that no one no one knew they wanted and then you made it and then everyone was like, yes, this is exactly what I need right now. <laughs> so <laughs> congratulations to you. Ah, uh, thanks. That's nice. Um, hang on a sec. We'll just close the recording and uh, we'll have a quick debrief. Okay. If you enjoyed this episode, make sure you hit the subscribe button in your podcast player and why not share it with a friend or two? If you want more from your Humans of Purpose experience, become a Humans of Purpose member today through our new platform, Supercast. All you need to do is hit the link in our show notes. If you have a message to share with our audience about your brand, products, or services, we have a wide variety of paid promotional packages available. Please get in touch by hitting the link in our show notes.